So this is a course primarily on the catechism and the moral life. Um, being midterm week, I've kind of shifted that slightly and we're not, in order to reduce your reading load this week, it's not a thing from stuff in the catechism, some general points that relate to moral theology and that are useful for you to have as background concepts. Um, these are in particular things that relate to the law. Uh, so in an older, more legalistically focused vision of the moral life, these were concepts that you'd find a lot of in the old manuals of moral theology before the council. But they are also things that crop up from time to time in any moral system. So even in a virtue ethic approach, these three principles we're going to look at today, gradualism, epicaea and probabilism uh, are worth knowing. So three kind of distinct topics that aren't really related at all, but I'm going to do a little bit of each. So if we kind of do 20 minutes roughly on each, that's what we're going to do. Um, I'm going to do these out of order. And let's start on page five with epicaea. And actually, this is going to be the shortest of them. Because I've only got one page of notes on this epicaea. Oh, actually, I haven't started with my normal board summary. So let's, what are we doing today? Legalism issues, I've summarized this. Um, gradualism, epicaea. and probabilism. The notion behind gradualism is in the life of the sinner, in the life of you, change is gradual or almost always gradual. Yeah, so you know you're impatient, you know you need to change, you repent of this, you go to confession, but the change from being an impatient person to being a patient person doesn't happen just because I see it's wrong and I confess it. Change usually is gradual. But there are two mistaken, or one mistaken, two different ways of looking at this. One is a thing called the gradualism, gradualism of the law. Now in that, standards change at different stages. That's different from what's called the law of gradualism. whereby we simply observe that change is gradual, but that the law itself and the question of what is sin or is not sin is a constant criteria. And we're going to note two background concepts here. One is that 
and we'll come back to this later when we look at the catechism on this, sufficient grace, so there's a section on grace in the moral life part of the catechism, that God has promised this, he will always give you enough grace, what's called sufficient grace. And then the question of the specific grace of perseverance. that that is a further grace, an additional grace. A grace, therefore, to pray for, a grace to, to seek. So gradualism, how people change. People change gradually. Epicaea. Now, here we're noticing that any law that is given, um, the application of the law is a long way from the lawgiver. And that holds whether the lawgiver is Congress um, or whether it's your religious superior or your bishop. And we're going to notice there's a concept that we call the mind of the legislator. So your superior commands you to do something but he's a long way off, and you don't know right here in this place, is that what he intends? So you need to try and interpret the mind of the legislator. And the further away you are in both time and place and circumstance, the more you need to be thinking, well, what was his, his mind, his intention? He wrote this down, but what did he mean when he said it? And it doesn't quite describe where I am here. How do I apply it? So I need the mind of the legislator. Then we're going to note a thing called probabilism. And there are two kind of background principles. One is that a doubtful law does not bind. If it's not clear that it's the law, then it's not the law. Then we're going to note when the authors are divided, the experts are divided, how do you proceed? That's the question probabilism seeks to address. You've got some situation and the experts don't agree what to do. How do you proceed? This expert says, if you do that, that will be a sin. This other expert says, if you do it, it won't be a sin. What do you do? This guy's saying it's a sin. 
St. Alphonsus says, if we can cite wise and prudent persons then we have what's called a probable opinion. It may not be certain, but it's what's called probable. And that means you can follow it with moral certitude. So those are the three issues we're going to be looking at today. Probabilism. That's what's meant, yeah. So it doesn't mean it is certain, but you can be certain following it that it's morally acceptable to follow it. How that plays out, we'll look through in detail. But you see the question. The experts are saying different things. What do you do? And that will apply to you, among other places, in the confessional. So you might in some situations give your opinion to people, but that there are other situations you with the authority of a priest need to not just be imposing your opinion, but a kind of solidity of opinion, probable opinion. Okay, so page five of the notes. We're gonna first go through the, the shorter of these three topics, epicaea. So, example on the top of the page, Friday abstinence from meat. So, say so in the USA, on Fridays in Lent, all Catholics aged 14 and older are required to abstain from meat. Then quote the uh, document issued by Paul VI after the Second Vatican Council, the law of abstinence forbids the eating of meat. Now, I ask a question. Can you eat bacon bits on a salad? Did the legislator intend to include them? Now here we have real bacon bits, yeah? Which is lovely. But that's pretty clear that that's meat. What about those artificial bacon bits that you get us at a salad bar? You know, artificial bacon bits? They, they look like mini gravel things. Mini gravel things, but they taste like bacon. In fact, it's... No. Well, it may be... The ones we have are real. And if you only go to fancy places, maybe you've never come across artificial bacon bits. An impossible Whopper at Burger King would be the same principle. Yeah. Like it, it's, it's emulating meat, but it's not actually meat. You could say, I think that's a little more clear. But you see the question I'm, I'm raising. It's pretending to be meat, it's trying to be meat, it's artificial meat. Is it therefore forbidden on a Friday of Lent? That would be one example. Here's a law, does it apply? The legislator has decreed you may not eat meat on Fridays in Lent. 
did the legislator include bacon bits, artificial bacon bits, when he was making that law? So, we're going to go through the principle, because you want the answer straight away, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> the general principle, I say, the application of a law is often far removed from the place or intention of the lawgiver. Thus, I say, the law might not apply here, or at this time, or to this person, because the lawgiver didn't envisage or intend this scenario. I say, epicaea involves interpreting the mind of the legislator. So we need to know, what was the purpose of the law? What did the legislator intend for it to apply in this circumstance? And I say, with unusual circumstances, we are, by definition, considering a scenario that the legislator didn't foresee. I note, if we can approach the legislator, for example, your superior, so Brother Adam would rarely be in this scenario because he can just go upstairs, knock on Father Victor's door and say, Superior, what did you mean when you said such and such? Because he's right there. Three in the morning, if somehow a question arises, probably not. Um, but generally speaking, if the superior is right there, you can ask him. So, if we can approach the legislator, then epicaea does not apply because we can directly ask the legislator for his mind on the situation in hand. I then quote one of the old manuals, we need to approach the legislator superior unless it is unproportionately difficult to approach him. And that's going to vary with how serious the situation is. Um, what is unproportionately uh, difficult to approach your superior? Um, let's read the next bit in bold because that maybe clarifies. So here I'm quoting a principle from a very authoritative preconciliar manual, Pruma. The legislator is presumed to be unwilling to bind his subjects in extraordinary cases where the observance of his law would cause injury or impose too severe a burden. So the laws are fast and you've been in surgery and or the law to fast um, on Good Friday but you've also been crossing the desert in a state of dehydration and without food for the last week anyway you finally get to a place where there's food but uh, it's Good Friday um, an extraordinary case where we could imagine the legislator didn't intend in that scenario the laws to be followed. The law doesn't say that, but what do we reasonably interpret the mind of the legislators to say? That's what Epicaea is trying to give us. A further point to say, this only concerns positive laws, as they're called, enacted by state or church. It does not concern the natural law. So the law on adultery, there aren't some times when maybe that doesn't imply what was the mind of the legislator. Um, 
so the, the natural law, as it, we call it, always applies. Positive laws by the church, by your bishop, by your superior, by Congress, these we apply thinking, what did the legislator intend? Yeah. You, should, you shall not kill, right? Allow a Marine that goes to war. Okay, I said we're going to cover that when we look at just war. But killing in self-defense is warranted. Killing in war is sometimes warranted, depending on circumstance. So the commandment, thou shalt not kill, had obviously, from the context in which it was given and has always been applied, um, a meaning of thou shalt not murder. And in particular, thou shalt not take innocent life. A soldier killing another soldier is not killing an innocent life. He's killing someone who has been trained to be a weapon of war. So he's in a whole different category. But we will come on to that when we look at just war theory. Um, okay, I give an example at the bottom of the page here. I say, an example of abusing this principle. Can I use a wooden chalice at mass? So I say, the Roman authorities who say these laws, say they're, they're far away, so epicaea. Um, the first pastor I ever had, he was always saying, oh, epicaea, epicaea, um, that we, we, you're supposed to have an altar cloth, but epicaea, epicaea, uh, that we're, we need to, the, I know the Vatican says we need to have precious metal for chalices, but epicaea, epicaea, just, um, he'd say this all the time. Um, so he was kind of old school enough that he had these preconciliar categories of a principle like epicaea. But for him, it, it kind of all had become just a way of saying the law doesn't apply here. Um, which is what the principle is about, is saying, okay, I'm in a situation where it seems to me the law doesn't apply. Let me flag up, first of all, a different scenario. Um, so you get, you're asked to say mass at some place. You get there, and it's the middle of nowhere, and it took two hours to get there, and the only chalice they have is a pottery chalice, which is clearly forbidden by church law. Did the legislator intend for you to say, everyone, there's no, not going to be any mass today? What did the legislator intend? <laughs> um, I think that's a very good answer. The legislator probably did intend for you to bring your own mass. So over the years, one of the lessons I have learnt, having been put in that situation repeatedly, always have my own mass kit. Because um, you will get to certain places, maybe not in your diocese, where there will be people that will do this to you deliberately. Um, so, yeah, especially in Joliet, you'll find, yeah. I have no idea in Joliet. Um, um, but do you see my question? That what did the legislator intend? You've got a clear conflict of, you're kind of a lose-lose situation. What did the legislator intend? Three weeks ago, I was asked to say mass at, for a group of homeschoolers 
Um, it was kind of in the middle of nowhere. It took me an hour and a half to get there. Got there. I had my mask kit complete. I had everything. Except I didn't have an alb or a tashable. Oh. Which, you know, how did I forget that? And I thought, oh no. <laughs> and these are kind of solid Catholics, yeah. Um, and I was thinking, um, but they really wanted mass. This had been a big thing in the calendar for a long time. What, what do you do? I kind of threw something together and we found a pretty grossy chasuble and a pretty embarrassing alb in, in a bad cupboard, um, bad cupboard. Um, so I checked the box legally, but it, it, I felt awful. Um, um, it would be valid if I did, it would be clearly forbidden. Now the question is, does the legislator intend in that scenario? I think in the calm light of day, the legislator would intend that I do not say mass dress like this. And it would be really embarrassing for me to have said, I'm really sorry, I've really messed up here. Um, but there's kind of a line, a stage where I can't do this. Um, so your question. I was just going to ask if you've ever uh, used the wooden towels before. I think I have used pottery when I've been in this exact scenario that's being described here. Um, the state of the church, I'm 23 years a priest, has changed a lot in that time. This kind of scenario was much more common when I was newly ordained. Um, so I learnt to bring my mask kit with me, um, but um, I, I also think it'd be more and more rare to be somewhere and find a group want mass, but want some weird stuff at mass. Those two things increasingly don't go together. Um, okay, so, but we understand the principle of Epicaea. So, you will have lots of scenarios. Does it apply? Do you want the answer on bacon bits? Because you do want the answer on bacon bits. So let's go to... Um, actually, no, we'll come back to that when we combine this with probabilism. Okay, so next category, probabilism. We'll come back to this as the last issue. Probabilism. So here I say, page six of the notes. So the issue, I say, there are many opinions about what is right or wrong. I say, even among approved Catholic theologians, there are some matters that are debated. So the question is, which opinions can be followed? And the answer is, what's called a probable opinion can be followed with moral certainty. Moral certainty meaning you as the acting agent, acting morally, you can be certain that it's okay for you to do this, even though the opinion itself doesn't have a, a certainty, it has a probability, a probable opinion. Okay, the example I give here, a Muslim example, 
May one adopt and implant a frozen embryo that is destined to be discarded. And I say respected authors disagree. Some say the act is adoption, which is clearly good. Others say it's IVF, which is bad. So there are literally millions of frozen embryos that have been created um, that are surplus embryos uh, that the laboratories frequently experiment on, discard. Frequently the laboratories don't know what to do with them. That they kind of recognize that this is special stuff, uh, even though they're not recognizing it as, as human persons. What are you to do? So one solution, um, and the, it's a group called the Snowflake Project that um, organize adopting embryos that are going to be discarded. So a woman would then implant in her womb somebody else's child. Now how is the act of becoming pregnant outside of marital intercourse, how is that not the same thing as just having a test tube baby to begin with? How is that not just partaking in the whole evil of creating people as products in a laboratory? You, you can see how you could have a strong opinion on both of those conclusions. And when you do bioethics, here we look at that in much greater depth. Um, now I'm just putting to you, you have good Catholic authors who argue for both of those positions. And the church at present is still in a phase which often happens in bioethics where it's hearing the debate and not yet giving a definitive ruling. So this is an example of what we're looking at here. I say a modern misapplication that you will hear from certain quarters. The majority of self-proclaimed Catholic writers accept abortion. Thus it would be said this abortion is a probable opinion. So this misapplication ignores two things. The tradition and magisterium have taught authoritatively on this topic from the Didache onwards and that such authors who, disagree, who accept abortion are not what are called approved authors in the sense of what technically are octores probati. Um, so yes, there I say our president, the speaker of the House of Representatives, very prominent public Catholics approve abortion. That doesn't mean their opinion is an approved opinion. An, an approved author is the category. Um, so not all opinions by people who call themselves Catholic get weighted the same way here. Okay, two foundational notions I say. First, a doubtful law does not bind. If the law somehow is not clear, then it doesn't oblige itself on you. Second, I say, there are Octores Probati approved authors whose opinion is generally to be followed in discerning the application of the moral law. When the opinions of the approved authors conflict 
the authors are divided, their opinions must be evaluated to see whether the conflict renders the application of the law doubtful. And I note repeating myself, such a conflict of opinion among autores probati presumes the lack of a definitive teaching by the magisterium. In contrast, an author who dissents from definitive magisterial teaching cannot be held to be among the auctoris probati. So we all understand the general prop scenario and problem. These two principles, a doubtful law does not bind. The authors disagree. How do we evaluate all these different opinions? The solution is, as I put it here, proposed by St. Alphonsus Liguri. I say summarized in two points. First point, if an opinion that the law should be applied was certainly more probable than the opinion that it should not be applied, then the opinion that the law should be applied must be followed. So if there isn't really doubt, you've got to do it just because you can get some kind of technicality and kind of say there's kind of a doubt here. Alfonso says, if the among the authors, we can say it's certain, then you have to do it. But otherwise, point two, one may wisely and freely embrace that opinion in favor of which we can cite the testimony of wise and prudent persons. Such an opinion is held to be a probable opinion, and probabilism claims that one may follow such a probable opinion with moral certainty. And I note we do have a modern problem that there's no published list of modern approved authors, Octoris Probati. So before the council, you'd have had various lists of approved authors. Generally speaking, seminary professors would be among approved authors, not all seminary professors, um, but kind of somehow prominent ones who wrote books. Um, so generally speaking with this, you would be comparing different books, different manuals. Um, Do we need more lists or are we? We just don't have those lists. So is that the solution? The hierarchy hasn't gone down that route, is one way of phrasing it. Um, among the many things in the state of the church, the crisis it is in today, that is not one of the things the hierarchy is setting itself. Um, so frozen embryos, we can find authors who are wise and prudent, who are orthodox and follow the church on everything that the church does teach definitively. And though wise and prudent persons say both things on this question. Therefore, one of your parishioners who's asking you, Father, what, what can we do? You as a pastor would need to say, there are wise and prudent persons who say both things. Therefore, you have a freedom in how you proceed. But your freedom must be rooted on you thinking it's right. 
not on you thinking this is convenient or well we'd always wanted a baby or you still got to yourself come to some kind of conclusion about this I think that's an important thing in your guidance to say to someone um, so on a big life-changing thing like that it would be very difficult to determine what your motivation was I think true yeah so I guess how certain would you have to counsel this person to be before they take any course of action We have a phrase we call moral certainty, which isn't metaphysical certainty. Metaphysical certainty does two plus two make four. There isn't any doubt there. Um, moral certainty, all the time I am acting with a, enough knowledge to make a decision, but I don't have an infinite amount of knowledge. I have enough knowledge to come to moral certainty. Certainly someone examining themselves and examining their own motives needs moral certainty, not metaphysical certainty. And someone who's overly scrupulous is going to need a different kind of challenging to say, well, are you just being overly scrupulous here? Sometimes with other people we need to say or suggest, it sounds like you don't really have many moral principles in your life and you just do what's convenient. Um, usually phrasing it much more subtly than that. <laughs> um, but yes, there are both types of people, both types of parishioners. Um, but there isn't a clear line. And these issues are when there aren't clear lines. Yeah, okay. I just had a question about that kind of the whole thing. Isn't that like the end justifies the means kind of bill? The claim would be the act itself isn't wrong. That's the claim. Um, and that depends on what you're saying the action is. Okay, page eight. Let's look at some examples here. Uh, meat on Fridays in Lent. Back to this example. Can you eat a duck-billed platypus? So is it a fish? So it swims underwater, it lays eggs like a lizard or a fish. Does that mean it's a fish? Because yes. it is, you know, duckbill plasmus, it is a mammal. Um, poisonous. Isn't, it poisons you, it's not, it's it meaning poisons, it's, ven it it's venomous, not poisonous then. Because poisonous would mean it would poison us to eat it. Therefore, it would be an irrelevant question. There you go. <laughs> I've only... The, the, uh, because I've had to consider this example, this is becoming. Um, well, so like, so so, people often refer to poisonous snakes. What they really mean is venomous snakes. You could eat the snake; it wouldn't poison you, but its bite is venomous. No, uh, so so. Well, you're saying it's got a venom. Yeah, they do. It's got a stinger. Okay, I learned something today. So, um, by decree of, I guess it was the Australian Bishops' Conference or whatever, uh, it was determined that it is actually meat. So, you can't have it. Is it but because it's warm-blooded? 
I don't know. Okay. The legislator determined it. If the legislator hadn't determined, we can imagine there must have been many years when uh, people in the Vatican were saying, you're saying there's this thing <laughs> that has fur and a, a bill and lays eggs and, you know, would, you've got to see it to believe it, yeah? Because, <laughs> you know, the first time these were shown on display, dead ones in Europe, they were believed to be fake, that they'd been artificially stitched together because they just look so ridiculous. Um, anyway, so if before the legislator decreed, it would be a reasonable opinion, I think, either way. Epicaea, we could say, the application was decreed to us by the Vatican. Here we are in the outback in Australia. How are we to know? It looks like a fish to me. It lays eggs, swims underwater. We're going to have it on Friday. <laughs> okay, bacon bits on your salads. So what did the legislator intend? Similar example, can you eat or drink a meat broth? Do you know what a meat broth is? Mm -hmm. doesn't have bits in it, it's, it's see-through, but it's from meat. Is it meat, therefore? It's not come from a vegetable. I say, in each of these examples, the legislator has since clarified, but there were periods of time when the above was not clear. Now, interestingly, um, the definition of meat changed after the Second Vatican Council. Because the legislator determines what he means when he says you may not eat meat. Um, so it used to be meat and meat derivatives. Now meat derivatives are permitted. Um, so you can have meat broth, even if your bacon bits... Hmm. So condiments are one of the, the examples. So there are lots of kind of sauces you get out of a tube that doesn't really look like meat anymore, but it's come from meat. It's been derived from meat. Therefore, the church has said it doesn't, it's no longer defined as meat. But before the council, so if you being your uber rad trad, right solid on super Catholic layperson, you don't trust your priest, you're going to look at this old-fashioned manual from the 1930s. Um, it will describe meat and say bacon bits, meat derivatives are meat. You may not have them. 1966, meat has changed. Um, and now meat isn't defined to include those. Before, could you have eggs? Would, would that have counted as a, a meat derivative? A like, would animal products have been cooled on Friday? I'm... I don't remember whether they... So in the East, like the Orthodox, they have all kinds of dairy stuff that they are, are forbidden when they, when they do abstinence. So for them, um, depending which... Because, you know, the East is a very broad place. Um, there are large numbers where various things like that are forbidden for them, which getting a source of protein then becomes difficult. Okay, so that's one set of examples. So, um, an authoritative opinion, just to come back to that thought. So, my Uncle Bob 
says that this is okay. Now, my uncle Bob is not an authoritative opinion. Yeah, he may be a good Catholic. Um, different example. Um, um, when's the earliest in the day you can say Vespers? Now, for you guys, that's an academic question that you, the obligation binding on you, you do have an obligation as a seminarian. It's not binding in canon law the way it is on me, on you. Uh, we just have to say, as a brother, you have to say morning prayer, evening prayer, like that. But we're not bound under mortal sin to like, by what, are, what we have to do. So, okay. I don't know how that is compared to the priesthood. Okay. But for me, when am I allowed to say Vespers? Anyone? Those are very interesting opinions here. Um, this actually is, I think, an example of probable opinion. I've not found authoritative list. If you live in Italy, the Italians don't have a word that distinguishes afternoon from evening. So they don't have good afternoon. You go from good morning to good evening. Um, which indicates for them, it's, and this is where the law is promulgated, it kind of all blends. I have been told, so I'm saying my uncle Bob is not an authoritative opinion. Um, there are priests I know who know much more about the old right laws that tell me before the council any time after midday was fine for Vespers. Um, and since the council, there's certainly been no clarification. Um, for myself, long before I knew that criteria to take as a so, uh, authorized opinion. Um, the Oratory Church in London, I knew, did Vespers at three o'clock, and that they've been doing Vespers at three o'clock publicly since before the Council. Um, that could be an example of not my Uncle Bob, it's more than that, something like an approved author, somehow a respectable opinion. To phrase it differently, it's not reasonable to think everybody is an expert about everything. So there are some things when I trust myself to maybe a brother professor here who has a level of expertise in a field, if he says it, I'm content to go with it. If you prayed, as a priest, if you prayed the old rite, liturgy the hours, would you still be fulfilling your obligation? Uh, I'm, I actually don't know the answer to that question. I, I think in the general instruction it says something about you have to be praying the one that is promoted by your bishops. The question is post-summorum pontificum, what, what the status <laughs> of the extraordinary form is, and I'm, I'm not sure. Um, and, and I'm not entirely sure if the legislator has clarified. Um, so there's a general principle <laughs> there's a general principle 
there's a general principle that the office stands for the office. So you go and you do your retreat in a Benedictine abbey and they have their own office that is not your office, but it is an approved office. The office stands for the office. And while you're with them, find to just join their office and don't think you have to do yours as well. Yeah. But when you go to um, Betty's little prayer group in the in the parish and they do their own little thing that's kind of like the office but we find that a bit complicated so we do this instead um, <laughs> that's not an approved office and you get a lot of that out there in the church yeah where the breviary is too complicated so they do something like the office you know what the office is you know this isn't approved uh, how about the, the little office because that's, that's an approved, but it's not... I don't think it's approved as an alternative to the breviary. Okay. I think it's like praying the rosary. Yeah. So it's... it's so like if you did that with Betty's little prayer group, it would be like you said, a different prayer. It'd be like you said the rosary. Okay. A good thing to do, but you have a particular obligation to do the liturgy of the hours. Okay. Um... If we have time, we'll come back to the COVID regulations. Um, let's, page two, gradualism. Now I asked you all to read page four of these notes on hearing confessions. Now obviously that is thinking way into the distant future for you at this stage, but it's for you to get some idea pastorally of what this scenario engages with. You're hearing confessions, someone comes to you and they confess the same thing every time. Um, what, what do you do? Gradualism. So question I put at the top of the page, how do pastors deal with sinners who are slow to change or seem to remain in their sin? And I say one false approach is something that is, is being described as the a gradualism of the law. For example, tell a penitent to sin less this week. For example, this coming week, try to watch porn only three times rather than your current practice of watching it daily. Now, I know you're all laughing, but this is the kind of bad advice that is out there and gets given. I um, say, so lurking behind such a mistaken approach is the notion that certain individuals are not capable of being good, that God does not expect such persons to avoid certain sins. So an author called Germain Grise sums it up this way. Josh, could you read the first bullet point? Mm -hmm. Sorry, we're, uh, we're on the top. Yeah, someone... Someone who attempts to reduce sexual sins only gradually has an effective will to actually continue committing such sins. Not committing them at all remains only an inefficacious wish. Brother Adam, you could read the next bullet point. Gradualism in this false sense involves a present will to commit a certain quota of sins, while presumably telling oneself that this quota will be less than before. So as Grise says, 
an intention to sin less is actually an intention to still sin. So it, it, this just doesn't work. Um, I say, however, there is an authentic approach of what's called the law of gradualness. I say, frequently in human experience, we only change gradually. The priest must never say it's okay to stay in sin. So quoting Griset again, advice to follow a gradual program of reducing sexual sins is therefore certain to be disastrous. But the priest must hear confessions knowing that often people change only gradually. I'd be very gradual in which sins you would directly address with the penitent. Don't refer to all their sins at once, for example. So when you hear a confession and someone comes in and they've got all their sins and you're thinking what to say, don't comment on everything. Um, don't comment on, often don't leap for the jugular. Um, and good advice has told me many years, if you are going to comment on sins of impurity, talk about something else first. First talk about their distractions in prayer, after they've kind of got used to you saying something, then make some comment about purity. But most of the time when people confess purity uh, or impurity, they either don't see it as a sin and don't mention it, or if they're mentioning it, they know it's wrong and they don't need you to hammer the point home. Next bullet point here, quoting a document came out in the 1990s called the Vademecum for Confessors, which is the rule book, guidebook for confessors, how, says this, the pastoral law of gradualness, not to be confused with the gradualness of the law, which would tend to diminish the demands it places on us, consists of requiring a decisive break with sin, together with a progressive path towards total union with the will of God and loving demands. And I quote again from Griset as a comment, the law of gradualness cannot be identified with the theory of gradations of the law as if there were in the divine law various levels or forms of precept for various persons and conditions. The teenage boy is required not to look at porn just as much as the 52-year-old priest. Now, his subjective guilt, his level of temptation may be different, but it's a sin in both cases. The gradualism of the law. So, versus the law of gradualism. So, the gradualism of the law where we put different standards for different people, say, well, it's okay for the teenager, but not for the 52-year-old priest. That is not a valid criteria. A law of gradualism, whereby change is gradual, and we talk to people knowing that change is gradual, is different. We're consistent in knowing it's a sin, consistent in saying what the law is, um, but we know that the individual we're working with changes gradually. So someone who thought that the 
gradualism of the law was right might look to the fact that if you're younger than 14 or older than 65, you don't have to fast. Like the church is expecting something different from you mm-hmm. depending on your situation. Mm-hmm. So how would you address that this is different from that? I just say the two of those are very different things. So children's eating needs is different from an adult's eating needs. Thus, the law regarding fasting is different. Um, so, is the topic this different, not the age? And there are there are teenage boys who are naturally disposed to a greater level of purity than some middle-aged men. So, the subjective guilt. At, at different ages isn't just about your age, it's also about you and your background and your upbringing. And, um, none of which means it's not a sin for you, it just means your subjective guilt in doing something that's sinful varies. Okay, page three. I want to introduce the concept of sufficient grace. Now we'll come back to this when we look at the catechism section on grace, but as I phrased it here, um, tapping it directly back to what we're talking about here. Sufficient grace, what's meant by this? It's always possible not to sin. So reading through these bullet points. God gives every person the grace he needs. If God asks you to do this, he gives you the grace to do it. God does not command us to do the impossible. So reading some of the scripture quotes there, Adam, first one. Our grace is sufficient for thee. Hunter, the next. God will not suffer you to be tempted above that which you are able. Francisco. Christ say, my yoke is sweet and my burden is light. Michael. As I live, says the Lord. I desire that the wicked turn from his way and live. So there are numerous places in the scriptures where the Lord is consistently saying he gives us what we need. And the church down the centuries teaches this definitively. In contrast to church doctrine, there's a, a heretic called Jansenus who taught that the observance of some commandments of God is impossible to the just. It was a very harsh view of human nature. And this was condemned as heretical um, by Pope Innocent X. Um, The Council of Trent says, if anyone says that the commandments of God are, even for one that is justified and constituted in grace, impossible to keep, let him be anathema. Anathema being the highest grade of condemnation in an official church pronouncement. It is always possible to keep the commandments of God. And a bullet point quoting from an author there, God distributes his grace in such a manner that all men who attain to the use of reason receive throughout their lives the grace necessary to enable them to attain salvation, or at least the means of obtaining such grace. 
However difficult it will be to be a priest, however difficult it is to be a seminarian, God gives you sufficient grace. Particularly with sin and the law, if God's asking it, he gives you the grace to do it. Principle clear? Okay, I'm now going to throw a, a spanner in the works here with a thing called the grace of perseverance. So God gives you enough grace, but that doesn't mean you're necessarily going to stay in grace like the Blessed Virgin Mary. So, grace of perseverance, this section. God gives every person sufficient grace not to sin. However, the grace of perseverance in grace, i.e. staying in grace, is only possible by a further grace from God. Our Lady remained in grace her whole life. This was only by an exceptional grace that this was possible. That grace was given to Our Lady. I say other saints are speculated to have been given this grace. St. John the Baptist, leaping in his mother's womb, filled with the Holy Spirit. St. Joseph. Any saint who perseveres in grace, never sinning, that's an exceptional grace that's given to them, the, the grace of perseverance. Uh, can you read the quote from the next anathema, if anyone? If anyone say that a man who is once justified can throughout his life avoid all sin, including even venial sin, except by a special privilege of God, let it be anathema. 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 Fancy word, anathema. Um, then a quoted commentator, this incapacity to avoid all sin during a lifetime is moral, not physical. And it means that while the will can always refuse to consent to sin, it will not always do so. So here are some bullet point quotes from scripture. Josh, first one. There is no man that... <coughs> Sins not. Brother Adam. There is no just man upon earth that does good and sins not. Adam. There is the just man falls seven times a day. Hunter. In many things we all offend. And I say we are all taught to pray, forgive us our trespasses. Jesus didn't say, those of you that sin, this is a prayer for you. No, we all sin. And the most famous of those is the just man seven times a day. Even the saint who we look to and say, here is a just man, even he falls seven times a day. So minute by minute, it's always possible for you not to sin, this particular struggle, this particular issue right now. But to consistently remain in that can happen, but only with a further grace that's called persevering in grace. Which is why, among other things, even when you come out of confession and you're all clean and everything's right, um, you know, we pray, Lord, give me the grace to persevere in grace until death. That I want to die persevering in grace. Um, so it is a grace he gives, but ask for it. It's an additional grace, the grace of perseverance. Okay, so this category, gradualism, sufficient grace, perseverance in grace, 
comments here. Yeah. So it's something we have to ask for, but we can't even learn to ask for that until we're taught it, that it exists. You can ask for it now. <laughs> Is that your point that we should be? You should have been told this before today. Well, yeah, and that. Uh, well, I, I mean, I've heard of this concept before, but also the Blessed Virgin Mary had this grace for her whole life. Why would it not be something that the rest of humanity would receive? That's a good question. Um, I hope you enjoy your Mariology course <laughs> and your Grace course when you do it with Father Mulcahy. Um, um, why does God give some graces to some people and not to others is a way of phrasing the same thing. Somehow that is for our best. He knows what he's about. Everything he distributes is somehow for your particular goods. Um, and for his greater glory. Why? You never come to a point where you're like, I'm doing my part, but he's just not giving me the grace of perseverance. N yeah, no, the, he, that wouldn't be. He's always doing his part. He's always giving sufficient grace. Um, but to say he's always giving sufficient grace doesn't mean staying in grace forever is easy, straightforward. You need to ask for that additional grace. Okay, let's go back to the Epicaea probabilism examples, page eight. We've got 10 minutes left here. COVID regulations. Um, this is a really recent scenario. The legislator has commanded something. Does the law bind? Uh, so, First, a U.S. bishop decrees that he dispenses all his laity from the Sunday Mass obligation. The question was raised, does a bishop have that authority? And are the laity in doubt still bound to the normal obligation? Did you read on the various blogs this question being raised at the time? Um, so canon lawyers were running around saying, what do the bishops think they're doing? Who on earth do the bishops think they are saying that they can just say to everybody, you're all dispensed? Who gave the bishops that authority? You'll notice in this diocese of Columbus and elsewhere, they've been much, they've not said so much the, the obligation has been reimposed as phrased that we are now telling you that it's here. Um, so among the American bishops, that canonical conversation was happening behind closed doors and saying actually what was publicly said at very least was an uncertain thing to say. So we'll just bypass whether we should have said it because it was said and we'll just say to the laity, you are now under obligation to come to Mass. It was always the case, if you cannot get to Mass, you're not obliged. So if Mass is, if there is no public Mass, are you obliged to go to it? 
Well, it's not there. <laughs> so you can't be obliged to go to it. Um, which is a different way of phrasing the question. Yeah? Probabilism, the law is doubtful about whether it binds. So a layperson in that scenario is genuinely unclear. You don't expect, the law doesn't expect lay people to be reading through every canon law blog post by every expert and whatever while they're not allowed to leave their house under COVID lockdown. Um, there's a level where we, the, maybe the authors are divided, but it's a wise and prudent person, in this case, actually my bishop, says, I don't have to go to Mass on Sunday, therefore I can with moral certitude not go to Mass on Sunday, which actually I can't do because the door's locked. So what if you had an order that was still doing Masses in your diocese? and you, you went to them because you were uncertain about the thing? The question is whether you would be obliged to be going. Okay. That's the question I'm raising here, yeah. Because um, this is all kind of legal scenarios. Are you under, under a moral, you're kind of raising, what, would you have been a bad person Well, no, going? like would you be, since you had the opportunity to go, and you don't think that the bishop is correct, would you be obliged to go to the place that's offering Mass? Because you and your particular conscience feel you're obliged to. You must follow your conscience. You must follow your conscience even when your conscience is erroneous. Um, and I think that would be an example. Um, okay, last example here. A bishop forbids his priests from hearing confessions. So under, locked, under COVID, this COVID lockdown, this was one of the examples. I asked the question, does a bishop have the authority to make such a universal prohibition? And if he does make such a, does the law bind? And if the priest hears confessions anyway, is he sinning? What would Epicaea, the application of the laws are far away, far off from the lawgiver. I don't have the opportunity in the COVID lockdown, even with my internet to, I've got limited sources of information. The mind of the legislator, what's really intended here for me to know what I should be doing as a pastor? How do I proceed? Anybody? Putting these principles together, how do I proceed? So what, what was the specific situation that you're asking about? Like, am I in so, a so, parish? So I, as a priest, have been forbidden by my bishop from hearing confessions. May I hear them anyway? Because I've got people wanting them to be heard. Because of COVID? Uh, this is under COVID, yeah. Okay. Well, you could hear confessions knowing that there's like no chance of getting COVID. Like if you're outside and you're whatever feet apart. That's not what my bishop has said. Right, but wouldn't that be in the mind of the legislator if the 
just because fear is that you're going to spread the disease. Okay, so you're trying to interpret what he said in terms of the mind of the legislator. In that case, you could just add. Um, okay, it's nine o'clock at night, and I told the people I would hear confessions tomorrow morning. I can't ask the bishop at nine o'clock at night. Can I? Not reasonable. I think that, that however Pruma described it, that would be... Um, so we do have scenarios where the law is unclear. Has the bishop exceeded his authority? Am I exceeding my authority if I hear confessions anyway? How do I proceed? Isn't it salvation of souls? Um, um, you're, you're therefore quoting the law, okay. Um, you're not using the principles I've given you here. <laughs> because that's the background to all law. So I don't think that really answers the question. If you think if you think it's if you think it's doubtful, that would be the criteria you'd be going by. True. Um, uh, I don't know. Maybe I talked to to a canon law lawyer, and I consider him like prudent. At nine o'clock at night. My buddy. We, 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 <laughs> the other priest is this parent. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So last. Authors are divided, maybe, because like there's all these other bishops that are. But they're not your bishop. They're not the ones that have authority. But okay, you can point to other bishops, other dioceses doing different things that seems to imply that there's a di difference of opinion as to what... That would be your criteria. The, basically, this lecture has been trying to introduce you to some criteria. When the application of the law is a long way from the lawgiver, you try to interpret it according to the mind and intention of the lawgiver, not according to your convenience, not according to your pet peeves and hobby horses. And when the experts disagree, if they are valid experts, good experts with the authority of um, what before the council would have been approved authors, then if we can cite wise and prudent persons then that's a path we can follow. Okay. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen.